Hello, welcome to our podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest joining us. Uh, she's particularly special and dear to my heart because we are from the same city in Albania. We're from Fier, Albania. <laughs> uh, Daniela is an inspiration and a young woman who truly deserves our attention. Uh, we've known each other for some time now and, and met in, in Italy through mutual friends. Uh, we had the pleasure of going on a trip together to Japan. Um, but before we get into the details of the trip, uh, here's Daniela. Thank you, Anya. Um, for raising the expectations, <laughs> I hope not to disappoint. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a great honor and a real pleasure to be able to share some of my journey and my story with you all. And I hope that you find some part of it helpful. Talk about being an Albanian young woman and how, you know, a little bit about your journey and how you've gotten here. Okay. Does that sound cool? Sounds like a plan. All right. Uh, so we met with Anya in Bologna, Italy. I believe that was in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Around that time, yeah. And I was in Italy after having spent four years in the US, um, finishing up my undergrad. And then I moved to Bologna for my first year of my master's degree. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Johns Hopkins University at the School for International Advanced Studies uh, for my graduate education. And they have a campus in, in Italy and being Albanian. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> I was very biased. So location was very important when it came to making a choice uh, for grad school. So you went from Albania to Cleveland, Ohio in yes. the US, and then you went back to Italy so close to being home, uh, almost yeah, home. Yeah. I used to joke with my parents that now I could go home every weekend. Uh, needless to say, that did not happen. Being in grad school is very busy. But to take a step back, yes, yeah, so I was born and raised in Albania in a very small village outside of here that's called Peshtanimad. Um, and I remember growing up, I realized one day in one of my geography classes when I was in middle school that my village was not on the map. At all? Like not listed? It's, yeah, it was Like not, the name you're saying? Yes. Okay. And <laughs> at the time, I felt like I lived, well, in a big community. But now I realize how small we were and we've gotten smaller because, at, well, back then... Um, we only had like 200 people living in the village. We still don't have like an elementary school. We had a kindergarten that was closed because there were not enough kids to go there. So now they go to a neighboring village. We got like a health center that's even to this day, not fully functioning. I believe when I was in high school, that's when we got like a health center. Other than that, we'd have like community nurses going around for the vaccination, which was one of my <laughs> horrors <laughs> waking up, like growing up. They hurt so bad. I don't yes. know why. And we knew who they were. So when we'd <laughs> see them coming, all the kids would hide. <laughs> but anyway, so um, I was born there and I grew up there. I did most of my education like in a village nearby until seventh grade. And then eighth grade, I went, I transferred to a school in Fier and stayed with uh, relatives there. And then for high school, I ended up going to a private high school in Fier with a, a scholarship, but I was commuting every day. So um, uh, after my 18th birthday, I was supposed to go to University of Tirana and study some sort of engineering. But then my cousin who lives in Cleveland, jokingly one day said, hey, why don't you apply to come here? And it was quite late. It was spring semester of uh, my senior year. And I did not take it seriously. I'm like, well, this is never going to work out. I'm really busy with exams here. School there is very expensive. I don't even know how to apply. It's like, well, you have nothing to lose. If you already know that you will have a place guaranteed at the University of Tirana, then just give this a shot. You don't have to come. So you were a top student. <laughs> And can we talk a little bit about that? Like, were you an incredible student? 
that they're trying to bring you to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should give her credit. She believed in me more than I believed oh, in myself so at great. the time. Yeah. Uh, education has been very important for me growing up, and I'm very grateful to my parents for seeing the value in that. I come from a family of all girls, and um, I mean, we know how our society functions and the different investment and value that's put on education for girls versus boys. And I mean, I grew up seeing all of my close friends and like my neighbors, like my girlfriends getting married when they were 15, 16, 17. From the village or yeah, from Yeah, from well? the village. Uh, and that was like my, that was my tight community. In yeah. the village, I was more like a visitor. I'd go, I'd do my classes and then I'd go back home. And the weekends I spent like mostly in the village because I relied on transportation. Uh, so I knew that education wasn't really a right, was more like a privilege, but I saw it, I don't know, I liked school a lot growing up, maybe because <laughs> there wasn't... A little nerd. <laughs> yes, a lot more besides that going on where I lived, and I loved learning and reading from a very young age, but also, like, my parents always pushed us to do better almost like it was never good enough there yeah. was always more that could be done but they did not deprive us from the opportunity of obtaining an education they knew that if there was a path forward like if I wanted something different other than you know getting married after finishing like middle or high school and having kids and moving on like you know, with my future husband's family, being good was not good enough. And that's where that came from. And I mean, of course, they were really busy working and everything. So they could not, they didn't have the time to handhold me. It was basically their investment is, we are going to do whatever we can. And they sacrificed even things that they didn't have for me to have the opportunity to go to school. And then from there to like move to the city and pursue my education. And they never held me back. Uh, and that's why they expected, they expected me to excel. And I saw in, that investment came with a sense of responsibility from a young age, but also understanding that this was not an opportunity that everybody had else had around And you were aware me. of this? Yes, you are aware of it because if, if your group of friends, the people that you grow up with, if they spend the day at home, but you don't, you get to go to school, you get to have another group of friends, you get to borrow book, books from like whatever small library and learn new things and they can't. And your guy friends already are shipped off to Greece or Italy to work as soon as they turn like 15 or 16. You. I don't know, you, when you grow up under those circumstances, there's a sense of awareness that gets instilled in you, even even if it's not like intentional, because that's that's your environment, that's your surrounding. And, and becoming aware, does it, how did it make you feel like, did it make you feel grateful, grateful or more humble or, or just more motivated? Or did, it, did, you make, did you feel guilty at all? Or did you maybe, did, like, did it inspire some kind of, uh, fight in you to fight for those people who couldn't for the vulnerable um, um i mean i don't or know was it too I deep when you were <laughs> too young no so there is one thing that i definitely felt like when you look we have a tendency to over rationalize things yeah wh when maybe. you look back and i don't want to do that but i know that there's always been a sense of responsibility with me along this journey just because I knew that I was being afforded, like, again, a privilege. It was not just an opportunity. And I deeply care for my community. I still do to this day. And I think what shaped my choices, even when I came to the U.S. and I was really confused about what path to choose, was that innate sense of responsibility that eventually I would have to figure out a way to give back and pay it forward. Yeah. And that's still with me. I don't think I've quite found the right way, uh, but that's something that I strive for every day. That's great. Yeah. So, okay. 
So you find yourself in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. The American dream. <laughs> yes. Very funny story. So again, um, this is being a little bit anachron- anachronistic. Okay. So the, the storytelling is anachronistic, but basically, so that's my life in Albania in a nutshell. Uh, and then I did apply to come to college and it was way too late because usually you need to apply like a year in advance and you apply in the fall. So my cousin told me about a friend of hers who was going to this small liberal art college in Rhea, Ohio, which is a 20 minute drive from downtown Cleveland. Um, and they had rolling admissions, which basically meant no deadline. So I could apply anytime and get in anytime. Um, and then I had to start the application. It was daunting. Like I did not even know but how to create like an account, complete my profile and write an essay and all that. So somehow I scrambled to put all of that together. And in hindsight, there was so much like randomness, but things came together in a way that even if I had tried to plan it out, it would have never worked. Um, And it was... It was almost, I don't know, it is still unbelievable. So what happened was <laughs> the mother of one of my high school friends and my high school friend who had already like uh, left Albania when she was a sophomore in college through a program that I had applied. It's called the United World Colleges, but I hadn't gotten in. So she had helped me with that application first. And then I remembered, and when I tried to apply for college, I was like, maybe I should reach out again because I'm so clueless. <laughs> so she helped me out with that and um, her daughter as well. And then the daughter of my English high school professor um, proofread my college application essay. Aww. And that's how that came together. So this application was finished sometime in end of April, beginning of June uh, in 2010. And then in July, I get an admissions letter and a scholarship. Whoa. And they gave you a scholarship as well? Yes. And full then, ride? It was not a full ride. It was quite close to that. Oh, nice. And then, um, I mean, I'd be living with my, with my cousin's parents. Uh, so I'd not be like incurring the room and board costs and they told me I could work at the university so that would help me like with pocket money and other personal expenses but it was still it was still not tangible I was not into the mindset that oh this is gonna happen but I got excited because I didn't think I was going to get accepted and the college admissions people were very excited, very positive. They're like, we want you here and all that. And then the question comes, they're like, well, can you please send us your address so we can mail you the admissions letter and the supporting documents for the embassy? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Bestanimat Bregas here, Albania. No zip code, no nothing. They're like, this is not an address. We need like a house number, street name. I was like, <laughs> Well, we barely have streets, let alone like a house names. number or like, a street name. Because you know how it is in Albania. It's like, well, go straight, uh, the cafe Zechos, and then, you know, the first olive tree, <laughs> things like that. So I mean, left, we that first corner when you see that exactly. one. <laughs> and like, there was a post office in the nearby village, but I didn't even know if that worked. I, we never received mail or anything. And they're like, well, we're sorry. Like, we don't know how to do this. And this is so funny. I never heard this before. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. they could not wrap their head around it. And I could not understand, like, why this was a big deal. <laughs> but eventually, my cousin's husband um, decided he was going to come to visit. So he brought the papers. So it's already July. And I'm taking it easy. I've already, like... I think by this time I had already gotten accepted to the University of Tirana. So I was like, I'm all set. And then they're like, oh, you need to apply for the visa. There's a long wait time. So I apply for the visa and I get an interview in September. 
the school tells me that they cannot wait for me because classes start in August. So I'd have to start a year or like a semester later. And for some reason, that was a big deal to me. I was like, no, you're 18, you finish high school, you go to college, you don't wait. That that idea of like postponing and starting later while everybody else would have already, you know, gotten into the flow of um, their university path. It, it kind of scared me and it made me feel like very insecure mm. because it was not what I was used to. And I grew up like planning the next step and having a very set path forward and any deviations, I was very reluctant to just let go and be like, hey, well, give it a chance. You don't know my, what, might, what might come up along the way. So I was about to turn them down. And then my friend's mom again tells me, hey, why don't you just email the embassy and tell them what the situation is and see if they can expedite your appointment. So I do email them on a Friday afternoon and then they get back to me Sunday around 4 p.m. or something like that saying, would you be available tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m. for an appointment in Tirana? And that's like a three and a half, four hour drive from where I lived. And I had no documents translated or notarized and other intricacies that they need for a student visa. So that all happened overnight. The next day I go and I was not prepared for the interview at all and I was sleep deprived. And the first question that comes naturally is, why do you want to go to the US? And I blanked. <laughs> I blanked because it's not that I had planned for it and I had like this whole story to tell. <laughs> it was this, this was almost like an accident. So I looked at the um, officer and I said, well, I hear you play by the rules and I'm looking for a fair game. Wow. And how did you say that in Albanian? It was in English. They wanted to interview <gasps> ah. me in English because I was, go I was coming here to study. Yeah. So I had to take the TOEFL, for the GRE, which I kind of winged because I didn't have a lot of time. But thankfully, the scores were good enough uh, for what I was looking for. And then the person looks at me and they're like, I've been like a diplomatic officer for 25 years and no one ever told me they want to go to the U.S., because they like rules. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm the odd one out. But that's how that happened. And they asked a couple other questions about, well, what will you study? Where are you going? Um, what are your ties in Albania and all that? They're like, great, congratulations. You got the visa. So I walk out and my dad and his friend had been waiting for like five hours. And I had no sign of excitement. So... They're both like, oh, no, you didn't get it. I was like, no, no, I did. I, I got it. <laughs> so they both sandwich hugged me. And they're like, great, let's go buy a ticket. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Wait. I mean, I did not say I'm going. I said I got it. They're like, oh, wonderful. Let's get you a coffee. In one hour, you decide we book a ticket and then you leave. <laughs> like, you didn't think about that part yet. <laughs> no, because uh, like it never materialized. Yeah. Like I kind of was going with emotions. But I never thought about like, well, what if I get it? What does it mean? Aww. So actually that day I did book a ticket for like to leave three days after. It was a very long flight. Of course, all flights from New York to Cleveland get canceled. And there was like bad weather that day, a storming or something. So I spent 18 hours at JFK. And this was actually my first time on a plane ever. I was traveling alone. I didn't have a phone or a computer on me. Beautiful. So I had to figure out where to get coins to use a public phone and let my cousin know that I was stuck there. I mean, it's a very long story for That's some an other time. But uh, needless to say, it was a very long and tiring journey. Almost made me hate flying, but I've recovered from that. <laughs> and then I go to Cleveland at 6 p.m. on a Sunday. And the next Monday at 8.30, I'm in school. And I'm jet lagged. So it took me kind of a week to realize what was happening. 
and the first reaction was what the hell did i just do <laughs> because I'm, i i was there 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 was no no going back and what was your first impression of cleveland or school in america so the school i went to had about 4000 people including like graduate programs and it was huge to me for the first month i got lost every single day going to class i could not wrap my head around and it's a small campus i compared to other things and that came later and i remember like i'd walk around with a map on my hand and people would see that i was lost and strangers would walk me to class every single day so i had to leave the house like an hour in advance to make sure i could get to class on time and another thing that really stuck with me was the informality in the classroom back home like there's a certain protocol for how you behave with your teacher you cannot be even like 2 minutes late to walk into the classroom and here it was free flow everybody would walk in and out they took gum they'd eat they'd put their feet on the table that was shocking it's like what is going on here <laughs> like is this school or what but um eventually i got used to that like uncertainty and type of flexibility it took like 3 years but <laughs> i got there did it help you think was it did it give you balance um, from the the extreme structure that comes from you know the formality of Albanian schools to the informality it did it was a blessing in disguise uh, at first it made me feel like very uncertain and kind of anxious because i wanted that comfort i wanted to to know that there was a structured path in place and if i ticked the boxes at the end i i would get what i was looking for like a stable job you're done with school and then you can worry about having a life mm. but i realized early on that that was not going to happen that here there is a lot of opportunities but nothing is handed to you as in hey this is a plan for mm -hmm. you just go with the motions and you're good to go you kind of have to carve your own path mm -hmm. you have a lot of resources and a lot of help that's available but you have to take ownership of it you have to take ownership and say that this is what i want to do this is who i am and this is what i'm going but first for. you have and to figure out exactly you're yeah. very right but first you have to figure out what do you want yeah who you are and what are you going for and i didn't know that like i came you had an idea or i was confused okay. like uh of course everybody wants if you're good in school everybody wants you to become like a medical doctor right so there was a lot of pressure back home for me to go that route and i decided not to for a lot of reasons so i was going to be an engineer but then i came back to the us and I was confused. I'm like, well, maybe I should go back and do medical school, but I have to do pre-med here and I only have a scholarship for 4 years and I need to think about the fact that after 4 years I need a job and I need to be financially independent and this is these are like grown-up decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And back home, it was like there was always someone like your family your friends your teachers that helped you kind of shape up your path you don't have or maybe you get it later on in life and maybe if i had stayed in albania i'd have to figure out how to get that sense of agency but leaving that culture of comfort and that strong sense of community and coming from such a small bubble into the US even though it was the midwest for me it was a big deal yeah. it was a really big change and i don't think i knew why why was and where i fit and what i wanted hmm. in this new culture i just like so many choices i think choices is the big <laughs> thing right because i think coming from you know an albanian community you're limited so of course you're going to have um your parents or family or close friends or you know guiding you in this certain path but in america when you have like okay open menu you know here's a buffet anything you want what would what do you want it's scares the hell out of you yes and, and i think a lot of girls and a lot of albanians in general are going through this yes and it, it's kind of ironic because you'd think if you come from an environment where you have very limited choices 
this would be heaven. Mm. And like, well, you can choose the world is yours. Mm -hmm. But you realize very soon that it is not. <laughs> that some of the limitations that yeah. you grew up with, you take with you. Yes. And it's not that they're going to handicap you, for lack of a better word, for the rest of your life. It's just that when you're just getting started and adjusting, there will be a very heavy pull. Mm -hmm. Like some of those limitations you have internalized they've they've become the way you think it's your foundation exactly and that's why they influence the way you you think and the way that you decide i remember the most terrifying thing that i heard like the first couple of weeks was from from one of my advisors who after hearing me like talk for like a good 45 minutes and seeing how confused I was, he was like, well, no problem. You can be undecided. I was like, I can be what? It's <laughs> like, well, we have a major. It's called undecided. Oh, I didn't know this. Really? Yes. And I'm like, no, that's not an option for me. <laughs> or generalist. <laughs> exactly. So like for the first two and a half years in college, every like semester I was switching majors. Wow. So it, I was the nightmare of the register's office. I learned a lot, but it was very painful because I went from being pre-med and taking like chemistry and biology classes to economics and then to mathematical economics. And then I added another major in international studies. And so if you see my transcript from like my undergrad years, it's the best reflection of a total state of confusion. But somehow I managed to figure it all out and I had a lot of help along the way. I mean, people that I had never met before in my life, like professors, new friends from like all over the world. I mean, they provided the guidance and like the support that I needed as well as family, of course. Yes. And I started becoming like, more comfortable with uncertainty and the fact that sometimes it's okay not to know mm -hmm. because that's how you get opportunities that you didn't even know existed. Were you afraid to ask questions? Were you afraid to not know? To yes. let people that you didn't know? Yes. Yeah. Because again, when you, back home, if you're a good student, you have the reputation of a good student, there are a lot of expectations and the the biggest pressure is like you always have to have the answers mm. it's almost it's almost nonsensical in the way that sometimes i felt like the expectation in the classroom back home was even when you asked the question you kind of had to have the answer mm. and if you think about it now it's like why would you waste your time asking a question if you already think or know that you have the answer. And there was another simpler reason why asking questions was terrifying. Because the second that you open your mouth and you have an accent, everybody turns around and looks at you. And then the focus <laughs> is not on the question, it's on you and who are you and where are you from. And I remember doing that the first week in class. And the professor also said like, oh, cute accent where are you from and I never talked for the rest of the semester like wow. I'd have to go to the professor one-on-one -on -one, but I was terrified of like speaking up in class I can relate when I came in <laughs> elementary school yeah and they would give us <laughs> pieces to read and yeah definitely have been embarrassed you know with the accent I think I made it like a life you know goal to not have one but as you get older you really really appreciate that right it yeah. makes you authentic there's something so unique I kind of so have to it's not going away for me <laughs> <laughs> I think it's beautiful and thank I think you. it should be embraced and I think you're doing a great job of that thank you yeah um so that was the the, the college journey um, and I don't mean to go on a rant here, but yeah, so I graduated from college. I think it's been one of the best experiences in my life. Very challenging, but I grew and I learned a lot. And the biggest lesson was um, to be open-minded mm. and take opportunities as they come. 
but also do it with a sense of agency. Like listen to your family, listen to your community. We have very strong like safety nets and support groups and mm-hmm. I'm a community investment, not just my family, my extended family and Absolutely. also people from school and people that I've met along the way. And that's the biggest asset that I've had and I will ever have in my life. But at the end of the day, the decision is yours because so is the responsibility. You cannot move on in life and try to like achieve your dreams and goals by deferring the decisions to other people and hoping that they will pick up after you or help you put the pieces together if things don't go as expected. I think that's a personal responsibility. I agree completely. Or um, pleasing. I think there's pleasing others and doing, you know, going through the paths or maybe there's someone that you truly admire and love and respect. And let's say they didn't go through a certain path, but and you almost want to pick up and, and make that dream a reality. I think a lot of women in our community do this. Do you have any advice for them and how they can listen to themselves? That's a very wise observation. Um, for some people, it works. Mm. And if you're happy with, with that path, there's nothing wrong with it. But you you have to be careful because I felt myself gravitating toward that. Like People would be like, oh, just go to medical school. Like It's great. Like Imagine how proud your parents will be. You'll, you'll make a lot of money. Like... And you'll be able to like pay it forward and all that. But that path was just adding a lot of stress and it was just not feasible for a lot of reasons for me. So I remember when I decided to give it up after like two years, it was one of the scariest decisions ever because my family back home didn't quite know how to advise me. Like uh, my parents didn't go to like universities. So this was very new to them so they didn't know how to help me but they were very good in not imposing Mm. their will on me and I'm very grateful for that and then my extended family here they were like oh no but just do accounting like you can work in a bank it's like a safe a safe path but I felt like my heart was not there Mm. yeah and I was torn between like doing something for external validation and following like my parents or like my community's advice and having their support as opposed to trying out a new path and maybe failing, but also not having that hand holding or that cheering like, hey, yes, we approve what you're doing. You're going to be great and all that. So it's good to get some distance when you feel like you're caught under so many forces moving in different directions and literally ask yourself the questions and ask them out loud or write them down, whatever works for you to get some distance of like, is this really what I want to do? And don't be afraid of, of answering that and giving yourself a little bit of space and time. And again, remembering that at the end of the day, if you really believe in something, like let yourself be guided by by dreams if you have them and if you know specifically what they are, but if you don't, by values that you stand by. And don't be scared because you don't have all the answers or the path mapped out or because there's resistance or conflict from people that you believe and you've looked up to. If you own it, And if you accept the fact that this might not be ideal and there will be hurdles, but no matter what, I will get up again and move ahead. It just gives you a sense of peace that's very much needed to keep like an open mind. And that courage. And and courage too. Courage is, is a big word. And it's courage is not something that you have or you don't or something that comes like okay I made the decision you know what like yeah I'm gonna own this now all my stresses and worries should go away it's like a muscle you kind of need to keep flexing (laughs) it until you kind of accumulate more courage and it's not an easy path 
No, but do you think we're courageous as a culture? <laughs> there, there is always a gut reaction to that but yeah. again I shy away from saying like this is like a cultural trait and that defines you I believe that culture especially with communities or with countries that are the size of ours it's um, it's a very important factor but I don't think that's that's the only thing that determines who you are or who you want to be in the future I, I I strongly believe that we can, if we don't have it, we can develop a sense of agency and that does not have to go against like community values or, or culture. That's a very diplomatic answer it to is. your question, but I, I, I do also I think do diplomacy I think we're living. very courageous. <laughs> I think we're born that way. <laughs> so I'll take that stance. Um, yeah. Because simply because our communities are so strong, you know? Yeah, that, that, that I we, agree. We have that a we can, you know, if we're capable and able to, I think that we can try to reach as high as possible, knowing that if we don't reach it, our family will still love us. And, you know, we still have that community to go back to if, all, you know. So I, I agree with the that. The safety net, I think. No, is what... I perfectly agree with you in that regard. And that's why I say I am a community investment. Mm. I'm a product yeah. of life. what a community could do if they pulled their resources. And I'm not just speaking about financial resources. There's so much, there's so much wisdom in a community. And there's so much soul that comes like with the values. And in a culture like the American one, those are not things that are readily found because of the mix of so many like they're there flows. but it's hard to right yeah it's not this it's not the same concept that yeah. we have yeah uh, but the reason why i shy away from saying like yes or no <laughs> is because there is something that as a culture i think we've struggled with and we still do and we're not very good at dealing with failure and we have a tendency of instilling guilt in ourselves or in others for certain actions. And what I mean by that is um, if outcome is not as expected or if you don't do what's perceived as being right usually the the response you get is like i told you so like you should have listened but unfortunately life is not always as predictable as you think it is and the best way to learn is sometimes by taking the wrong step and by making mistakes and i say that also noting that like my philosophy in life is do no harm so even if you're deciding to go a certain route as long as you're not hurting like other people or at least not doing so intentionally, it's okay. You should still have the courage when you fail at the end of the road or whenever you gain the awareness of like, you know, there is something wrong with this to ask a different question. Yeah. What am I learning? Or so when, I, okay, so you said you were so scared when you decided not to go for medical school, right? So why were you afraid? Were you afraid that all the weight then fell on you on the decision that you were not going to go to medical school and that you were going to pursue your dreams? Yeah, it comes. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a traditional path. Even if the process here was different, you still have it kind of mapped out and you have the support of like your family, extended family. You have people cheering for you. And if you decide to do something else for me, it was like, well, what is that something else? And then nobody would understand. They're like, well, well what is this like international studies? What are you going to do work in an embassy? And mathematical economics, is that even a major? Like, do you become a professor? Do you work in a bank? Like, I mean, we're, we're confused. Like, a lot of different questions. So how, would you, how would you handle it? <laughs> I relied very heavily, to be honest, on my... I had two advisors. Amazing. They were American. Um, one of them was a retired military judge who had traveled the world, was stationed in Africa for a very long time. And he, he would ask a lot of tough questions, but also give me guidance in, in how, to, how to process like 
the way I felt about it and my confusion and how to move forward and not get stuck in a circle of like bouncing back and forth because I did not have enough momentum to just like make a decision mm-hmm. and see it through. And then my my other advisor, uh, she actually went to the same grad school I went and she's the one who, who brought it up. I did not even know that Johns Hopkins size in Bologna existed. Um, very wise woman. She would always tell me when I'd go to her office hours, the path is made in the walking of it. And it's an old Chinese proverb. But basically the lesson was you cannot like figure out and analyze everything in your head because there's so many forces and you will never know for sure. But you take a step forward, you see what happens, you evaluate, and then you decide in what direction your next step is going to be. And that doesn't mean that you're lost. You still have a goal. It's just there's so many paths that you can follow that you don't have to be married to one. Moment of silence. No, that's very deep. That's truly. <laughs> but that's that's a, honestly that's how I handled that, and yeah. it was scary and terrifying, and I doubted myself so many times. But I'm grateful that I had people around me that reminded me that even when you're lost in confusion, sometimes the best way to get clarity is just go one step further. Yeah acting living being positive moving forward learning more right yeah again not being afraid to experience new things um or maybe taking on another major and then realizing okay maybe this isn't it and then you know going and trying the next um but when, when, when you made the decision let's talk about like when you actually made the decision and you're in the field and you're, you found yourself exactly where you want to be and where you want to contribute to your community and the world. Like, was that a gradual, obviously that was a gradual process, but when you were in that moment, when, when was that moment when you realized, okay, I am here or I'm present or I am? It's a work in progress. I'm still working on it. <laughs> and that's the beauty in it. It's like a never ending process, but you get, a step closer every single time you make a decision or you do something or you learn something. And one thing that has shifted with my mindset is not being scared because I feel fear. It's, it's only human. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of genetically programmed to feel fear and other emotions, but trying to add a healthy dose of curiosity to it, being like, Oh, that's interesting. Why does this happen this way? Why do I feel this way about it? Trying to understand it. So the way I made peace with, you know, moving away from like science and medicine and doing more like international relations and mathematical economics um, was this idea that I wanted to understand how factors like economic policy and the government's role in providing for communities had shaped my life and the, the the life of the community that I had left back home. So I a friend, a French student who was in exchange during the time that I was in college recommended this book called Poor Economics from Esther Duflau, who's currently working at MIT. And it's an economic development book. And it talks about how different policies shape the lives of the poor and determine the kind of opportunities that people like families and their children have with regards to building their future. And it just resonated really strongly with me. And that that was who I was and where I came from. And I realized that I wanted to know more about it at a very deep level. And I wanted to be part of the change even if it was like something at the margin or modest and I got the opportunity to travel at the time I went to China to do like economic development research on the ground and see how like the government's policies with like urban development so demolishing suburbs and moving people out 
to make room for these huge real estate complexes affected the life of the people and their access to opportunities. And little by little, things or pieces started to like connect. And it felt like I almost always knew that this is what I wanted to do, <laughs> even if like all your most of your questions were being answered. No, I had no? like I started having more, more questions, questions. But the funny thing is I was excited about it. I was yeah. okay with it. I was fine with saying like I don't know, but tell me more about yeah. it. And that might have been the very first time in my life that I said that out loud and I was like, "You know what? I don't have a problem with that." Not knowing. Yeah. Tell me more about it. That's cool. <laughs> How was China similar to Albania? Very good question. <laughs> well, China, very is a, no, China is a very big country. And I was there only for three weeks. And most of the time I was interviewing uh, the college students and other people with regard to, to our project. But something very interesting that happened, we were there in June and it was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And we were at the university town called Xiamen. We were sitting with a group of Chinese students on the grass and we were asking them questions. And one of the students made a tangential comment about, well, you don't always know it all, like how things are. And something that was not related to our topic and none of us really thought about why would he bring up something like that until like a couple of days later, we were in the hotel room with one of my friends from college and a, a coworker from, from the university sends me an email saying, how did it feel being in China for the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre? And we forgot we we did not even notice it and later on we learned that they don't have facebook they have like weibo which is their version of facebook like youtube was blocked google very like censored and words like tiananmen square or massacre or anniversary they were censored so any comment or post with those words would be like automatically deleted so it was like we were in a bubble we the, the kind of information that we were being fed and everything was very doctored. And I did not leave or experience Albania before the 90s, but my parents and my grandparents did. So that sense of being sheltered and living in a comfortable bubble that's constructed in a very intentional way I'd say at a broad level, it, it, it just like reminded me of, of home in a way. Reminded you of home when our parents and grandparents used to live in, in, in that time kind of? Yes, but I think things like that take time to go away and they're inherited in a very funny way from one generation to another. Because if you think about it, well, we were brought up and socialized by our parents and the society that we were born into was very heavily shaped by that so it's going to take another couple generations for that to fade away a couple i i believe so wow. <laughs> but um, again um, <laughs> even I, for I, even for us I'm in not, america no, you think? i'm not pessimistic but <laughs> no, these are things that have shaped values and i don't say it in a negative way yeah it's just uh 45 years of history they leave a very deep mark and some some of those like values and ways of thinking and ways of living are very deeply entrenched in the fabric of, of society and it really it may not be such a horrible thing you know no i don't think of it like as as a negative thing you asked me about like a sense of familiarity yeah. familiarity and um that sense of like wanting or finding yourself being sheltered in, in a bubble or in a reality that you have kind of constructed. I found that to be kind of like similar between like China and Albania 
and I see some elements of it transcending at the personal level, like even when my, with myself when I first yeah. moved here. And I often see it sometimes that I have this tendency to gravitate toward the comfortable. The comfortable meaning like more... The known, like ah, okay, the, yeah, yeah. the assured path or like choosing not to know more or not to ask more because... You're not, afraid not pushing you, the boundaries so yes, much because yeah. you're afraid that you cannot handle it or that it maybe it is wrong that maybe you should not go that path as yeah. opposed to being like it's not I mean it's not an effort to try find to try and find something wrong or to like judge a one path of action or people's choices or anything it's just a genuine feeling of curiosity and wanting to learn what else is out there mm -hmm. like trying to make the mental shift from you know this is okay i'm comfortable with this and i don't want to try and push the boundaries to try and find something else so with this mindset has how has this affected like your position now and and some of your um creative work that you know some of the work that you're you're doing right now yeah, so uh, the biggest effect is I would have never been able to predict that I am where I am right now if I had tried to and if I had made an effort to calculate like my moves and map my path. Um, and I'm grateful for where I am. So basically what happened is I graduated, went to grad school, had the opportunity to travel and work in, in different countries in economic development. And then after grad school, I ended up working for the International Monetary Fund in D.C. So I worked with governments in advising, like, in economic policy making, like, in Mexico and the U.S. and then around the world in topics like how to increase youth employment and facilitate the process through government policies. And after that, uh, I applied for a research fellow job at Harvard with the Center for International Development. And I was lucky enough to get it. Uh, and it's it's a funny story because I knew about them from my sophomore year in college. An economics professor brought them up to me because of like the methods that they use, like economic complexity, growth diagnostics, like network science, things that I was fascinated with. And I kept up with them over the years and I realized that they had a project in Albania. Uh, on economic growth and development. So they were working with the government in helping them build capacity and also really understand the problems that they have from an in-depth research and data perspective so they can use evidence when it comes to designing their policies and evaluating their effect before making another move. And I kept reading about it and I knew it in my heart that I really wanted to, to, to be involved but I didn't know if I was like entirely ready. So anyway, I applied for the job and after a lengthy process, I get in and initially I started working on other countries. So I had been on the job for three, four months um, when my boss, Ricardo Hausman, a Venezuelan American, brilliant economist, uh, talks to the Albania team and just drops the comment about why isn't she working on Albania? Exactly. And nobody had an answer. <laughs> like, well, she's busy. Like, we've put her on these two other projects and we don't want to overwhelm her. She's new. It's like, I want her on Albania. Yeah. I want a meeting with her. I want to talk to her. And she has to do macro in Albania because that's what I did at the IMF. I did macroeconomic analysis. So I talked to Ricardo. He's like, do you have the time like to work and this and that? And I was like, Yes, of course. I mean, you don't you don't say no to your boss on your first four months on the job. Uh, but I was reluctant. Uh, now it's been quite a while that I've been working on the project, and I've seen I've seen things change, and I've actually gotten to know my country a lot better through this project, because I never worked in Albania. All I knew about it was from the perspective of like living and growing up there, and from what I heard from from my, my family and the disappointment of many people with the government, like the disbelief, 
not really thinking that change can happen. Are you, are you more hopeful now after working with Harvard on, on the data with, for Albania? Definitely. I think we have a lot of potential. And the best thing about this project is that I've seen the change with my own eyes. I I know there is still a very big disconnect between, you know, trying to make policy and change happen at the government level and having that reach to the community, but being able to meet people that are genuinely investing their lives in trying to make things better and trying to make them change. And that sometimes find themselves equally resigned with like the system and everything, but they still go back the next day and keep working on it. It almost like makes it mandatory to be hopeful and to want to help as opposed to contemplating pointing fingers and looking for blame. Based on the data though, do you see hope? Like, do you see that we have a beautiful country that's able to produce? I mean, based on the data, the picture is very optimistic. <laughs> like, we are a very blessed country in in very in very many ways. Like, we're very strategically located. Yeah. We have a lot of resources, natural and otherwise. Our youth is very talented. Yes. It's a different matter that they're living because they don't see some of the opportunities back home. Mm. But there are opportunities. We just need to be better at making those available and easier easier to grab. Um, I don't want to go on an economic rant, but even economically, like we're doing a lot better than we used to. Like in 2013, we'll forget the 90s. It's a very messy business. But in 2013, we had like an economic crisis and we've bounced back. Now we're growing at about 4%, which is four or five times higher than the euro area growth rate. So if you think about it, there is there is a lot of hope and it's not unfounded. It's not just like driven by feelings or by stories. The facts are there that if you do the work, you do see the results, but you need to believe in it and you need to invest in it. And it's an ongoing investment. It's not like you have a magic or like a silver bullet. You, it's a one shot kind of thing and then you're done. Would you recommend people who have um, left the country to at one time, at one point in their life, go back and invest in their uh, homeland? Definitely. I, th- I, think, I think we owe it to ourselves. Um, no matter where we are in the world, Albania is going to be home. And like you said, we have a very strong sense of community and a very strong sense of pride. But more than that, we are assets. We have the kind of know-how and resources, financial or otherwise, that can help build the country. And through the Harvard project, the team has worked in the past with the uh, Albanian diaspora, especially in the United States. And there are a lot of efforts in getting people organized and getting people who want to invest in Albania the right channels to get there. And things are happening. Like there's businesses that are being built and there's relationships that are being fostered to transfer some of that knowledge that has been acquired here back home. So yes, if you find it in your heart that the right move is to go back to Albania and be there and invest there, definitely do so. But if you don't, that's not the end of it. There's a lot of other ways to give back and contribute, even if you're not there physically. Daniela, thank you so much for your time. Uh, You've shared a lot of knowledge, a lot of um, life knowledge with us, which we really, really appreciate. And I hope that it's inspired many of our listeners. Um, uh, One last question. what What advice would you give to our listeners right now? Thank you so much, Anya. This was, I mean, it's it's really an honor. Um, and I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to share my story with other people. I hope, I hope this helps someone at some point in their life the same way that other people sharing their stories with me gave me hope and inspiration. Um, when it comes to making change happen for yourself, for your community, we were talking about things changing in Albania and 
what does the picture look like and is it hopeful or not and what can we do to make it better you don't you don't have to wait it doesn't have to be there and then meaning in albania in the future it can be here and now you can start with yourself and with your own community wherever you are in bid in the us or somewhere else and and make that change happen be kind to someone help someone with with advice help yourself and that creates a, a, a ripple effect that eventually will multiply and will translate to things back home also getting better thank you daniela